0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jordy, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Now, Some of you have been in touch in recent weeks to say that you miss a bit of the vibe of the old podcast, the pre-Times radio podcast of uh, Times Colleagues Wanging on about things in the news. So, uh, we're going to make some changes to the podcast. And what we're going to do is include, because we do it on uh, the show every day anyway, when I have a couple of Times columnists just picking apart what's going on in the news and telling us what they really think. So, we're going to start including them every day, as well as the main big chunky thing that we do uh, as well, which is on the sort of big political issue of the day. So, as it's a Monday, Always on a Monday, we have Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. They're coming up in just a sec. And I've also, uh, for the big thing today, I've been talking to George Osborne about Joe Biden, about the budget and about why government doesn't always really work. He's got quite a lot to say about that. But first then, let's kick off with today's columnists. Let's um, uh, stick with uh, the US election result and the sort of inevitable question of whether this does mean the end of populism and a return to soggy centrism given that uh, supposedly uh donald trump winning 306 um electoral college votes change politics forever in one direction does joe biden being on course to do the same does that change politics uh forever back in the opposite direction libby
2: I don't think so I think I think what's what's a great relief and people will talk uh, we can all talk about oh soggy centrism all the rest all the rest of it but the great thing is it feels like a return to rational thinking because here we have a lifelong politician not a showman you know Biden was, was Obama's wingman you know um Kamala may be a bit harder left than him and that will be interesting to see as, as she as she sort of flexes her muscles and and develops this but I, I just think it, it it's a return to some kind of rationality, which you you did not feel. The frightening thing about Trump was not not right wingery; it was actual insanity. You know, it was a <laughs> sense that here was somebody with his with his finger on on the button, and with with a very I mean, yes, yes, of course, some decent things happened within his within his time, but you just had a sense that that things were things were not sane, were not rational. And I like my politicians to kind of think things through. It um, would be nice if Boris did a bit more of that as well. Um, so uh, I, think, I don't think it's a huge, a huge shift. I think it's a return to something we're, we're more used to, uh, which is rationality.
1: <laughs> I, think you, I think you could well be right. Rachel, over the weekend, I, I, I think I tweeted this. I definitely was talking to some actual people in real life about it. Is it one of the biggest impacts of the result of the US election is we might go days, if not weeks, without thinking about the <laughs> President of the United States?
3: Yes I thought it was really interesting one of the somebody said you know people were voting for Biden because they just wanted a presidency that you could have on in the background and I think there is something <laughs> in that people are exhausted by this kind of frenetic angry divisive nature of politics so there was a poll recently which found that 60% of Brit- british voters are just exhausted by all the divisions in politics and people want a period of calm and I think you've seen that with the election of Jacinda Ardern in uh, New Zealand, and now with Biden. I think Libby's right, it's not necessarily left-right, it's actually, just let's have some calm, rational, sensible, common sense decisions. And particularly with the coronavirus, people want politicians who can actually get things done and manage things. Everyone was very rude about managerialism and technocracy. But actually, (laughs) right at the moment, we need somebody who can manage a crisis uh, and does get a grip of detail, actually cares and respects experts. Um, So that is a sort of shift away from that angry, emotional uh, sort of charisma of the
1: of the populists uh, do we risk over interpreting all of this and uh libby and you know labor people in particular getting very excited that a, a slightly dull man can end up beating a blonde uh, populist uh if that can happen in america it can happen here too <laughs> should keir starmer take any comfort from what's happened
2: Oh, I think he should just be very very calm and rational. I mean the interesting thing is is what Rachel was saying there's somebody to coined the slogan Make America Dull again. <laughs> okay. this, is, this, this is something that we want. We really do need some dull politics, and, and maybe Keir Starmer is the man to step forward and, and give us this. Uh, I don't think we want any more inspirational rhetoric from anybody on either side. You know, we didn't want it from Jeremy Corbyn. We don't. We don't, we, we don't want sort of Churchill cloning, self cloning, or kind of mad, uh, uh, mad Mr Toad stuff. You know, we really do need some sort of solid, hard working. Thoughtful stuff, and I mean, one of the depressing things at the moment in in our government is the is the cronyism, is the is this new vaccine chief and um, the promotion of Dido Harding's The sense that people who aren't actually really very good at doing things, but who've said the right things and seemed right to government, are getting important management jobs, and they're not doing them very well.
1: Yeah, I think just hearing from our politicians, less. I mean, whether that's you know it's been on Brexit or coronavirus or Donald Trump, you know, normality, we, our, our jobs as political journalists used to be a sort of niche pursuit. Um, and it, <laughs> part of me thinks we'd do everyone a lot of good to pay less attention to what what we were always doing, Rachel.
3: Well, yes. And I think there was this sort of sense where, when you have Brexit and then Trump, somehow that everyone thought this was this huge populist wave for these kind of charismatic right wing figures. But actually, Dominic Cummings, in fact, wrote a really interesting blog about how there often isn't, it's not a sort of big why. He talked about branching histories. And in fact, if 600,000 people had voted differently in the... Brexit referendum, the result would have been for Remain. That's one percent of the registered voters, and somehow it's easy to put a narrative on things retrospectively. And actually, people, most people just want stuff to carry on, you know, rumbling along in the background. There isn't a sort of big why, a big sort of narrative. They just want it to keep going, and and it's easy to sort of superimpose these grand theories on things, whereas actually, whether it's um, you know populism or uh, Sleepy Joe carrying on. People just want <laughs> want the world to keep running.
1: I was just trying to remember who it was. The, the, was it Roosevelt, I think, who coined the phrase first hundred days? And that was in part because he basically didn't address the American people almost at all for his first 100 days or not. You know, he took office, said what he was going to do and then came and updated them sort of later. I think it was Roosevelt. And that sort of sense of actually a bit less, a bit less of uh, hearing from them might be quite good. Um, We should talk about uh, Kamala Harris and this question of whether or not we should talk about what she's wearing. Because there's always been this sort of, uh, this difference between um, uh, journalists commenting on what male politicians wear, I mean, mainly because they just wear suits, uh, and what uh, female politicians wear. But then, you know, if you're going to turn up to an event wearing trainers with 2020, personalised trainers, you sort of want people to notice. So what's the right thing to do on this, Libby?
2: Oh well, I'm not not one to come to for fashion hints, uh, as you know. I <laughs> thought there was a, a sensible piece in the in the re- red box today about uh, the fact that it's not irrelevant what she wears. What I think is interesting, if I can just diverge off sideways for a minute, uh, this is talking to uh, black friends, uh, is that. Um, uh, whereas a middle-class white woman can get away with looking unbelievably scruffy and still be sort of believed, you know, everything, oh, you know, the Shirley Williams effect, all that, sort of, yeah, serious person, but the moment you are a woman of colour, you feel that the world will judge you if you're anything but immaculate. And, you know, this young black woman was saying it's really irritating. She said, you know, I sort of look at you and what you wear. You know, <laughs> you can get away with it and people take you seriously. People would just think I was a lowlife. And I think that Kamala Harris says to some extent she is going to have to be even more bandbox than, than a Hillary Clinton. She, she really is. I think that's a shame. But it's, it's a fact, you know, the, the way people look at people has to be taken into account.
1: And I suppose that's sort of the nature of it, isn't it, um, uh, Rachel? And and, I mean, I think we've talked before about how Angela Merkel essentially wears the same outfit the whole time and never gets commented on. Carmela Harris essentially seems a bit cooler than Angela Merkel and so as a result will be commented on.
3: Well, and she was um, photographed wearing those sort of trainers and jogging outfit, wasn't she, when she was ringing Biden to congratulate him on winning. And that was actually seen as a positive; it was a sign that she was sort of modern and relatable, etc. Mm. Um, but and obviously, but it's very not cool, the most very important cool. thing about her, or the fact that she's going to be vice president. But it is interesting, and politicians do get judged on what way they wear. Men and women actually think about Michael Foot and the donkey jacket. And Um, I think we've all had things to say. Exactly.
1: Jeremy Corbyn's tracksuit or even, you know, Boris Johnson's running gear, which always looks a bit like sort of swimming shorts and a jumper you do the garden in. But yeah. And uh, they do
3: it on purpose. So Dominic Cummings in his beanies, that's a total statement. I don't care. I'm not part of the rules. I'm not part of the establishment. And Cameron, do you remember with his Converse trainers in the Cameroons, their symbol of modernisation was not wearing ties, or in, in one case I remember going to interview one minister who wasn't wearing shoes, and that was sort of seen as
1: is a great symbol of modernity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, remember that the biggest story in politics was that David Cameron never tie on. Uh, it was exactly. a simple time, It was a simple time um, Let's move on and talk about this story in the front of the Times today. GCHQ has begun an offensive cyber operation to disrupt anti-vaccine propaganda being spread by hostile states. The Times understands the spy agency is using a toolkit developed to tackle disinformation and recruitment material peddled by Islamic State. But it goes on to say that uh, they can only tackle um, threats from uh, rogue states some state adversaries. It's not legally permitted to disrupt online content written by ordinary citizens. A source telling the Times, uh, you wouldn't get authorization to go after cranks. People have a right to say bats*** <laughs> stuff online. Um. And I just thought it was quite interesting, this, that the state can sort of try to... It seems OK for the state to police what's online if it's been done by the bad Russians. But apparently not to take down stuff which is considered bad by individuals. And I just thought it was quite an interesting sort of freedom of speech debate, Libby.
2: Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, rather, I'm rather with them. I mean, I get very upset. I mean, the the, the business of uh, of Islamic propaganda, which is actually recruiting, I think you can jump on that... Uh, whoever's doing it, because there, there are laws about incitement to violence and so on, incitement to jihad. But I think the business of the anti-vaxxers is far more interesting because they, uh, I mean, if individuals are spreading nonsense about vaccines turning you into apes and so on, um, that that does matter. But on the other hand, once you start jumping on it and banning it, then you get to a situation where you make martyrs and people say, well, of course, you know, we're not allowed to say this. These are the things we're not allowed to say because they prevent us saying them. And I think the, the only answer is just terrific sort of counter response. I think you have to allow idiots to put <laughs> idiotic falsehoods online um, as long as they're not actually inciting violence. And I think the anti-vaxxers are going to be a real, real problem. But I think once you start actually changing the law so you can ban them, then you create martyrs, then you create a sense that, you know, that there's sort of big, big brother watching us all. It's a real problem.
1: What do you think, Rachel? Because I mean, you know, it's sort of, like, it's not the same as inciting violence, but it's potentially as. Deadly, perhaps even more deadly, um, you know, peddling anti-vax Yeah, I think I agree with
3: Libby, actually. Um, but what I do think is that it needs to be much more transparency about who is saying stuff online. It's so easy for people to put things out anonymously, particularly on Twitter. And that happens with the death threats and the rape threats that um, particularly women MPs are getting. A lot of it comes from anonymous sources uh, and I think it's the same with misinformation. If you know who's saying stuff, it's much easier to judge why they're saying it, what they're saying, whether there's any credibility to it. Uh, and I think it then can be more easily combated. I think that then I think it should be. You ought to have to say who you are online, um, and that, and then that becomes a much sort of the answer is transparency, as rather than banning things. There was a wonderful
2: remark made once by Kathleen Moran, which is that it was brilliant when celebrities talked absolute rubbish and backed these things. said Because if it was, uh, you know, because then everybody would jump up and contradict it in public and there would be a public rebuttal. Whereas when it was just your auntie saying it, you know, <laughs> then there, there, there was no public rebuttal. So in a way, loony celebrities are quite useful, you know, because the moment someone says <laughs> something, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow says, you know, stick a jade egg no up yourself and
3: who who everyone says no. <laughs> run by the um, knowing who the accounts are that are run by the Russians or the Chinese or whatever. It's just showing who's doing this stuff, and I, I think there is there's a sort of two the public and the private slightly merge sometimes. I think.
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I was just trying to think of some of those. I mean, Ian Brown, I think, is one of those, isn't he? The, the um... mm-hmm. Stone Rose's front man, uh, I think, is one of those who's who's got some interesting views on um, what's behind the lockdown and all that. Uh, Just before I let you go, uh, Libby, your column today, Bashir, was just one of many who used Diana. It's really interesting, this this, this saga of the Panorama interviews, what, 25 years ago, uh, the Panorama interview with um, Diana Princess of Wales uh, by Martin Bashir, and... I mean, it does seem like a sort of different time, the extraordinary lengths they went to, the fake um, bank statements done by a mate of his, there was a graphic designer and all of that. Um, Explain what you've written about in your column today. Uh,
2: well, there, there are two things. One is sort of reiterating the fact everybody knows that all Diana's adult life, she was exploited by everybody. I mean, sometimes she joined in the exploitation herself. You know, she wasn't totally blameless, but she was used. She was an enormous profit centre for a lot of people. And the thing about the Bashir-Diana interview, what really, really got to me was that I read lots of John le Carre novels and I know that you've got to sometimes do forgeries and fake bank statements <laughs> and fake passports and everything. You've got to do them to catch your internet national arms trader, you know, to catch your spy, whatever. But this was not a scoop. It was a sting. I mean, basically the prize in this forgery incident, which has been admitted, the prize was to get a woman who we already knew her marriage had failed. We already knew she was unhappy. There had already been the Andrew Morton book. It was just to get her on the telly to say things about Prince Charles, perhaps not being good enough to be king and to admit to her own adulteries. That was the prize, was to get this poor, sad, not terribly bright, wounded, hurt and humiliated woman to get up there on the television. And for that, you are willing to do a forged bank statement? You know, is that journalism? Is it?
1: I'm not sure. I don't think you'd get away with it these days. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Rachel? Have you been following this side? No,
3: I think um, it's totally unacceptable, but I thought the point Libby made was absolutely right, that... um, Diana was the real victim of all of this and that she became, didn't she, a sort of, uh, she was a symbol of a new, more open, more emotional side of society. Tony Blair summed it up with his phrase, the people's princess and she was so popular i think <laughs> partly because she was vulnerable and there was she wasn't like these remote um royals who were sort of on their high horse um but that then obviously became her achilles heel if you like um and i thought there's a really interesting contrast with the uh emily Maitlis interview with prince andrew recently where he was so you know um arrogant in control you know part of the establishment is the complete opposite there was no sting whatsoever in that he you know drops himself in it he made his own mistake through his arrogance uh uh, and high-handedness and I think Libby's absolutely right she was sort of tricked into it but then her own vulnerability uh you know became led to her downfall in the end
1: Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis there. And don't forget, you can read their columns online at thetimes.co.uk. And if you want to become a Times subscriber, just go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Up next, I speak to George Osborne.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax
2: and think about
0: work. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Shorley. Right, let's get down to the main course. Get your teeth stuck into the big political issue of the day. Let's get on with it leaving the Treasury and the Commons behind, George Osborne has had uh, well more jobs than I've had hot dinners, and it's fair to say I've had a lot of hot dinners. And George joins me now. Morning, George. Good morning. You obviously haven't eaten enough. <laughs> uh, I mean, my um, uh, waistline would beg to differ. But anyway, let's not get let's not get bogged down that. We should probably start with uh, with America and uh, your reaction to the news that, that Joe Biden has won, and what you think this might mean uh, for politics.
4: Well, look, I think it's good news. Uh, I'm I'm a British Conservative, uh, I've long known many Republicans, and I've got friends in the Republican Party, and that was, you know, is the sister party of the Conservatives. But, you know, I think Donald Trump uh, was not really a Republican, and I don't think brought great honour and respect to the office of the presidency. And Joe Biden, who I know a little, I think represents a return to the mainstream, a return to seriousness and experience and moderation. And uh that's gotta be good in my view for the United States, but they've made their own judgment, uh, but also good for the world.
1: Um, I in fact when I was new you were coming on this one, I took out a photo of you at the cabinet table in Downing Street with uh, Joe Biden. You said you know him a bit. I mean he obviously came over when Barack Obama did. What what's what can you tell us about him that we might not know already? Well I've I've met him you know
4: maybe half a dozen times in my life. I he um I, I, the most memorable meeting I had with him was actually with uh, David Cameron and some other members of the British cabinet at the time, like William Hague. We went over to Washington in 2012, uh, where a dinner was being thrown in David Cameron's honour. And David Cameron was meeting with Obama in the, in the Oval Office. And the, me and William and the kind of travelling British delegation were held in the cabinet room with the uh, senior members of the American administration while we waited for that one-to-one meeting to finish. And I ended up having a very long conversation with Joe Biden about his life and sort of swapping experience of politics. Uh, And the first thing to know is he is a very nice, engaging, not very grand person who (laughs) you can have a long conversation with. and, And you have to pinch yourself and go, well, this is the vice president of the United States, as he was at the time. Um, but, he, he, you know, he, a lot of that character, actually, I think, has come across in this somewhat unusual election uh, disrupted by COVID. But the kind of homespun stories, uh, the, you know, his his long, long career in politics. He was telling me about getting elected to the Senate you know, before he was even legally allowed to take up his seat at the Senate. Um, and uh, I think it's an, in, he's an in, it's interesting normally when we get a Democrat for president we've not really heard very much about them. And there's a kind of huge degree of excitement about this young governor or young senator. I remember that with Barack Obama or Bill Clinton. You know, Joe Biden's an extremely well-known quantity and of course, you know, is, is elderly. And I, I, there's not quite the same sort of buzz about him uh, around the world, but there's quite a buzz about what he's representing and what he's replacing. and uh, And I think that's gonna be interesting to watch.
1: Yeah, one of your um, former cabinet colleagues I was speaking to the last week or so said that you know what Joe Biden thinks about everything because he tells you at great length in uh, in meetings. But you um, you tweeted over the weekend that the mainstream was back and uh, Nick Timothy, who you sort of worked uh, within government, uh, he later became Theresa May's former chief of staff. He's written in the Telegraph, I think, this morning, saying that you, you not just tweeted but gushed and you were hoping for a return to the liberal and technocratic policies that made you such a much-loved national treasure. Um, I, I think basically Nick Timothy doesn't quite agree with you. But do you think there's a risk that we read too much into this, and that is, you know, British politics doesn't really have any bearing on American politics, and vice versa?
4: Well, I think uh, I think it's it's broadly the case, and there are lots of exceptions that American and British political cycles are quite closely aligned. You know, when when Bill Clinton came in after a long period of Republican rule, Ronald Reagan and and George Bush Senior, you know, there there was lots of talks of. The new Democrats, the New Deal, and of course, a few years later, we had New Labour and their <laughs> New Deal, and so on. Um, and uh, George W. Bush, although of course it all got, uh, you know, uh, sidetracked if that's the right word, into the war on terror and 9/11. But originally, you know, he was all for compassionate conservatism, get, proving that the. The conservative side of America was interested in things like the public services, and again there were similarities with the modern compassionate conservatism that David Cameron uh, promoted as well. So, I, you know, I think there there are trends. Um, as I say, there are exceptions, and I I think it's interesting here. they already on the left in Britain, on the in the Labour Party. They've made a decision to move away from the kind of radical, <clears throat> in my view, pretty dangerous and unappealing. Marxism of Jeremy Corbyn and go for a much more mainstream Labour leader in Keir Starmer. And that was the same choice that the Democrats made this year in choosing Joe Biden as their candidate. And I think you can argue that any other Democrat other than Joe Biden would probably have lost this election. You know, it was precisely because Biden was unthreatening, had a broad appeal, uh, couldn't be said to be sort of dangerous in his economic approach, uh, that he was able to Essentially, assemble all the anti-Trump votes, and and Trump was never able to really get an angle on Biden. Never, you know, there was no attack on Biden that that really. Uh, landed, and if the worst you can say about your opponents is they're a bit sleepy, then <laughs> you haven't got a very effective uh, attack campaign.
1: So, do you, do you think? I mean, there's, obviously, there's lots of things that keep uh, Boris Johnson awake uh, at night at the moment. Um, I mean, not least having a, a small baby in the house. But do you do you think that this should worry him? Then that that, um, that this does put a bit of wind in the sails of Keir Starmer's brand of slightly dull centristy Labour politics.
4: Well, I think. Mean, look, I think the Conservatives you know, are on notice that there is a serious, credible, alternative government. Now, they've had two general elections uh, in 2017, 2019, when that was not the case. You know, there was a lot of people who said, I just can't have Corbyn as the prime minister. And, you know, that created uh, a kind of cushion of comfort for conservatives. And even in 2015, uh, Ed Miliband, and this is, you know, I don't want to be particularly disrespectful to him, but he was not really able to establish himself as an alternative prime minister. I think the conservatives, Boris Johnson, have a much more serious challenge now from the opposition, because they do have someone who, whatever his policies and whether you think he's the right person, does look like they could be the prime minister. And, uh, and look, that's good for our democracy. It's good for the job the opposition has to do of holding Prime ministers to account, uh, and you know, so I, you know, if I was, uh, you know, I think Boris Johnson will be thinking, okay, you know, l- is the sort of brand of just trying to, you know, fire up the kind of nationalist based, be the kind of extension of the Brexit movement into government, is that going to work for me over the next few years, or do I need to return to the to the other version of Boris Johnson, which was the mayor of London who reached. Uh, out and won a load of, you know, Labour supporters in. By the way, liberal metropolitan London. And I think you know the 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 big mistake for the Conservative movement in this country would be to think all you know we can ignore the cities. uh We don't want to deal with you know the point you're you know the sort of Nick Timothy approach. You know Nick had a go at running an election and it was a disaster. So you know the <laughs> let's have a let's have a let's have a. Let's have the approach, which is we want to maximize our vote, and yes, we absolutely want to hold on to uh, brilliant wins of the last election, like Sedgefield uh, in the north of England, but we also you know we lost Putney, and we don't want to be losing Putney so uh you know that to me is the approach that is most likely and i'm you know, of course a car carrying conservative most likely to win for the conservatives in the in the years ahead
1: um do you, to what extent uh, have you been surprised by the way that Boris Johnson's handled uh the pandemic, like you said, you know, from your experience both as mayor and then uh, in in the Commons as well. People have criticized him for being slow, too optimistic, always thinking things will turn out right in the end, not being across the detail. is that is that the Boris Johnson that you expected? Uh, when he got to Downing Street. Well, look, I think you know Boris Johnson has got an incredible ability to communicate, to
4: connect, you know, which is basically unparalleled in British politics over the last few years, uh, and and you know, and we saw that as mayor, and we we saw it in that election win in December. I think the, you know the challenge. I have a lot of sympathy, and I discount a lot for those very early months of the pandemic. It hit the world out of the blue. You can have an argument about whether we should all have been better prepared but let's be clear every single country uh, was caught by surprise uh, because they weren't planning for this uh, kind of uh, contingency and yeah I-, I think the government did pretty well in exceptionally difficult circumstances to put together two basic policies one is we're going to lock down the country to save the nhs and second we're going to have a furlough scheme to make sure that people can afford to stay at home uh, which you would never have got in any previous pandemic in history You know, I think as things have gone on, where where I would be, you know, where I would kind of raise questions, if you like. And again, I I know lots of people involved. It's a very, very difficult situation. I I don't think you want to give people, you don't want to be overly optimistic. You want to give people a sense there's a plan, that there's a destination, uh, but that it's going to be a long road to that destination. And I think the kind of early mistakes perhaps, in the government's communication, was to say, you know, in March, the lockdown was only gonna last for three weeks, it lasted for three months, uh, that, uh, you know, we, things would be back to normal by September, that uh, it'll all be over by Christmas. I think that's changing in the messaging, but, you know, constantly letting us all hope that the cavalry is about to arrive in the form of a vaccine or a rapid test, great if it does, but in the meantime, I think you need to prepare the country psychologically, for the, this is a long, hard slog. And I think the country partly got there before the government did. Uh, so, I don't know, communication is not everything. Um, and sometimes, you know, people who don't want to attack the government just focus on the communication. But, you know, in terms of the role of the prime minister, it's really important that you constantly keep the country with you, that you have credibility in what you say. And so the more actually Boris Johnson now says it's a long slog, it could be six months. Uh, it's hard. But there is a plan that will get us out of this eventually. Uh, the better off you'll be.
1: Do you think there's a problem with the way government works? The, you know, there was a lot of focus early on on did he go to a Cobra meeting? Um, you know, the the, the Whitehall government uh, departments, Downing Street, uh, work still on a system of, you know, people sitting around, Old mahogany tables and bits of paper going in and out of red boxes, which it hasn't changed really for centuries.
4: You know, I was giving evidence to a, a commission on better government that Nick Herbert has created, and a really impressive um, array of people are on that commission. And you know, they're looking at the centre of government. Prime ministers always, and, and successive generations always look at what you can do to improve the centre, and and often big events in our history, like the First World War, the Second World War, you know, accelerated. Changes to the way government works, uh, and I think you know it is true that in April, from what I can gather, I'm obviously no longer involved. You know, the the centre of the British state was pretty th- threadbare because the Prime Minister was ill, the Cabinet Secretary was ill, the Health Secretary was ill, uh, and and the kind of the, the middle of government was was overly reliant, if you like, on on the sort of instructions from the Prime Minister. Uh, and this would be true of whoever was prime minister, And and a, a sort of strong center uh, had not been created and, and has not been sustained. Now I know they're looking at it uh, and how you do it. And as I say, there's a kind of history of people trying and getting this wrong in the past. But you, I think you have to ask yourself some basic questions. Why has the British state perhaps not performed as well as the German government? And it's not just because somehow Brits love their freedom and Germans don't <laughs> you know, Germany is a very successful freedom loving country um, you know for me the German example is the most interesting people have talked a lot on Times Radio and, and in the Evening Standard which I'm the editor-in-chief of about a Swedish example but really the German example is the one we should be looking at You know, a large country larger than ours in Europe with a kind of uh, a similarly ethnically mixed population uh, urban population how did it how did it uh, appear to have a much better performance? And that might be that the, A, the center of the German government was stronger and B, that it was a more devolved, a more kind of established devolved system with all the different German states. And in Britain, if you see the rows with you know, the mayor of Manchester, you know, I helped uh, bring that devolution along when I was chancellor and I very much supported as chair of the Northern powerhouse still. You know how, how can we use that better, what, and how can we look at one particular part of government, which is the National Health Service, whose doctors and nurses have done and continue to do heroic work, but is a very nationalised, very centralised system uh, that you know
1: perhaps is not as flexible, is not as regional as it needs to be. So you're you're coming dangerously close there to breaking one of the sort of the golden rules of politics that you could never criticise the NHS. Do you think that there's a there's a problem that, you know, it's one thing you can clap the doctors and nurses on your doorstep, but that doesn't mean that the NHS as an organisation. You know, the government gets criticised, scientists have been criticised. There's still a reluctance to say, why didn't the NHS have uh, a proper supply chain of PPE? Why didn't it have the capacity? Why, why are we going into the second lockdown with capacity still a massive uh, problem? But there's still this reluctance in politics to say, actually, the, the NHS isn't perfect
4: well the, the nhs is as uh, one former tory chancellor said the closest thing the british people have to a national <laughs> religion uh, and uh, you know it is it, it's very hard to talk about the nhs without uh, acknowledging the you know life threatening work that the nurses and the doctors and the hospital porters and the lab technicians are doing right now while we're having this cozy conversation so <clears throat> i want you know everyone to uh, realize that i have nothing other than incredible respect for that but as an organisation, you know it's it's a vast bureaucracy, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. Bureaucracies aren't always bad, but you know how it's run, how it's managed, it, it, it's very separate from other arms of government. It's very disconnected with local government, um, and you know I think it should ask itself questions about how it's handled this pandemic compared to other public health care systems. And from what I understand, but this is, you know, I would like to see more evidence of this, in Germany, the national health system there, A, engages with the private sector more, made more use of private sector testing, particularly in the early phases, uh, was more federalized in other words there was sort of more regional control over the nhs we do actually have some of that regional control in manchester but not elsewhere in the country and you know no one wants to touch health reform because it's you know so difficult and it you know to tony blair you say he bore the scars of it and the david cameron government had an unhappy experience with its nhs reforms <clears throat> but looking at you know it would be kind of strange if you didn't say we should look at the way the Centre of Government handled this crisis. We should look at the way local cities and councils handled this crisis, but we're not going to look at the way the NHS did. Yeah. And some of the things the NHS did were really impressive, like creating those emergency hospitals, the Nightingale hospitals. By the way, that was long planned; that was part of a many, many years of contingency planning. But I think on testing, you know, it was slow to involve other bits of the public and private sector in the testing. And you know, even today, you know, we still months and months after we knew we needed it do not have a testing system that works in a way that if you or I or anyone else listening wants to get a test not because we've got symptoms of COVID but because we want to reassure ourselves or we've been in contact with someone who had COVID we don't want to isolate for two weeks we'd like to get some knowledge about whether we're infected you know the system can't provide for that and to me that's been like one of the great uh you know things that needs fixing and they're doing about five hundred thousand tests a day Anything you can do 500,000 of a day, you can do 5 million of a day, and in a population of 65 million, 500,000 isn't
1: enough. Uh, one of the things, honestly, we've got Dido Harding over overseeing the, the testing uh, system. We've had stories over the weekend about Kate Bingham, who's overseeing uh, the Vaccine Task Force, hiring p- her own PR people on £600,000. Do you think there's a problem with... The accountability of the people who are supposed to be running, you know, why is this not a minister in the government who can be called to the House of Commons to be challenged about this stuff? Uh, Rather than how it looks, um, uh, the the main qualification seems to be being married to a Tory MP, and uh, you get put in charge of these, uh, you know, hugely important organisations at a time uh, where they, and then they're just not accountable. Well, I think to both, to be fair to both individuals, they're very successful. Private sector careers, running telecom
4: companies and running a you know a finance business in the biochemical industry, and you know so it, it, they you know we often say we want more expertise in government and more experience of business in government. Um, I think there's definitely been something to look at, not necessarily in these two cases, but generally, which is a lot of contracts were signed very quickly, uh, particularly in the early days and we you know it's very important that people know that public money is well spent and uh, it's you know taxpayers not being ripped off and there will have to be checks on those contracts and who got the money and what they did with it uh, i would say a, a kind of failing of the british government and this is not this government but generally is this assumption that it always has to be a minister somewhere and you know sometimes and we and that minister has to be a member of parliament the result is you, you know with it's a relatively limited number of people you can ever make ministers. They have to be Conservative MPs, basically, or maybe one or two you can draft in from the House of Lords. You know, why I would like to actually see something more akin to systems you see in other countries, which tend to be more presidential, uh, but let's be honest, that's the way we've moved anyway as a country, where you can bring in a lot of senior expertise from the charity sector, the private sector, uh, to bolster the government at its most senior Uh, echelons. Uh, And that kind of civil service reform and ministerial reform is something we should be open to. Uh, As for testing itself, look, I would say getting the testing system up and running has for many, many months been the obvious priority for the country. It's the thing that would enable us to go back to restaurants, back to theatres. If you can have a test, you then be let in rather than the heat test we all do now. Uh, if you had a kind of really quick COVID test and you had very rapid testing capacity so that anyone who wanted a test because they come into contact with someone or they're worried that they might have the disease, could get it and get retested a couple of days later. You know, this is after all what they're talking about in the news just now about for the airports. If we could have that that system, all the former prime ministers, bar one, wrote privately to Boris Johnson in July saying this was the priority. And I still feel it's been too much, something that has been given to the health department, given to the NHS, and and the rest of government has not thrown the full weight of the British state behind it. Who, and it's been distracted by other things, you know, and it shouldn't be. This is the like, absolute number one overwhelming priority facing the country.
1: Who, who were the former prime ministers who wrote privately to Boris Johnson?
4: Well, the Mayan standing was everyone but Theresa May. Uh, and I, I don't know why she didn't want to sign the letter but did that you know they they did write to Boris Johnson saying and of course it's easy you know I know what it's like as a former chancellor, all the kind of current team say oh we don't want to hear from the, the old guard but you know if you've got conservative and labor prime ministers who've between them got you know many decades of experience saying like this is the thing you should really think about and we're not trying to score political points we're doing it all completely privately you know that I think, uh, it's something that should have been listened to, and I think continues should, should still be listened to now. I mean, look, I you know, at risk of sounding like we're going back into the Brexit debate, <laughs> it is completely nonsense for the British government at a time of you know massive national health crisis and economic crisis to have thousands of civil servants planning lorry parks in Kent because we might not sign an agreement with the EU over cod in the North Sea. It's just totally disproportionate to the challenge facing the country. It's not a clear sense of priority. And I would want, you know, in Downing Street, everyone to be working on COVID, on the vaccine rollout when the vaccine comes, on getting the the full weight of the British state deployed, on ramping up the testing so that it's instantaneous and and, and available to anyone who needs it. Uh, And that's the way you can, you know, get your economy, you know, back to some kind of normality.
1: Um, I also have to ask you about your old job as uh, Chancellor. In fact, you were on my very first show when Times Radio launched at the end of June when we thought that, you know, the lo- the lockdown was coming to an end, all back to normal. What does Rishi Sunak need to do? Uh, start balancing the books. I mean, that feels like a long way off yet. Um, but w- where are you now on the debate about... Uh, When does he have to turn off the spending taps? It does seem like every time he tries to say, I can't go on spending this money forever, whether it's furlough or free school meals or so on, um, he ends up being, the political pressure is too great and he ends up um, caving in. At what point do you think he needs to turn the taps off?
4: Well, the the reason why um, Rishi Sunak had to restart the furlough scheme was precisely because of the things I'm talking about. We had to go back into a national lockdown because we didn't have the test and tracing capacity, which we could have built up over the months uh, beforehand. You know, again, lots of um, ex- good excuses why that didn't exist in March and April, because uh, no country really had it. Uh, but by kind of October, November, you, you know, you could have developed it. And then I think you could have avoided the national lockdown. Yeah. And then once you have a national lockdown, you, of course, you have to say to people who are working in restaurants or bars or you know, shops that have shut, that we're going to support you. It would be you know very uh, unfair and, and bizarre if you didn't. So it's all been delayed, these kind of big economic questions, which is how do you wean the British economy and the labor market off these furlough schemes? And second, that question which is going to come in British politics, like it's gonna come elsewhere in the world, how do you pay for all this? Now I'm I'm all for using the credibility of the British state to borrow money when you need to in a crisis. When I was Chancellor, my argument was when the you know you fix the roof when the sun is shining, not when the sun is you know overcast. And and you know once we were through the banking crisis, we then had to start repairing things and dealing with things like the debt and the deficit. And if we hadn't, I don't think Britain would have been in a very good condition to deal with. Uh, the, the the Covid crisis and and be able to afford all this money now, because we wouldn't have had the credibility that we've We've shown we can repair things afterwards. So it's not that Rishi you know, Sunat needs to be repairing things now He needs to be spending money now, but he will have to turn to a, setting out a path for fixing the public finances to getting that deficit down which will be double digit by the time this is all over and and that restores the credibility for whatever the next crisis is. Uh, and uh, that, you know, that is, I'm afraid, you can call it austerity, you can call it whatever you like, you can call it boosters. It doesn't matter what name you give to it. <laughs> the truth is, we've spent a lot of money, we're heavily in debt, our country is poorer, sadly, and we're all gonna feel that in the years ahead. And who navigates that uh, best
1: will uh, lead the country going forward. Um, do you think I mean, you've been there in the Treasury before you, you you had your tentacles across government, you had lots of Tory MPs in your orbit and that sort of thing. Um, some criticism of Rishi Sunak has been a bit too obvious the invites to coffee in number 11, the putting his signature on the on the Instagram pictures and all that sort of thing. Does he need to be careful that he, he doesn't look like he's he's bolstering his own uh, political reputation rather than doing the right thing by the economy?
4: But I I think the British government is best served when there's more of Rishi Sunak or less, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, I think we have someone who is working exceptionally hard all hours on top of the detail, coming up with some pretty imaginative and creative schemes with his hardworking Treasury civil servants, who often get a bad name but have done amazingly in this crisis. Uh, And, uh, you know... Frankly, I'm I'm pretty pleased he's there at the Treasury at the, this moment of crisis.
1: I, I just want to ask you: your old friend Theresa May has been slightly reborn on the on the backbenches. Um, uh, with you know, she's even doing jokes now. Uh, would you believe? Is there a time? Is there ever a time when you regret leaving the Commons when you did, and you wish you were st- sort of still in there in the thick of it?
4: No, I don't, well, I mean, look, I uh, you know, of course, I care a about my country. B you know, the political uh, battle is a, you know, a hard one to leave. Uh, but I've really enjoyed life outside politics. I had a very good run at it um, as Chancellor and Shadow Chancellor before that. Uh, and so, you know, those that those fights in the last parliament, which I might have been part of, you know, I'm not sure I would have uh, greatly enjoyed all about, you know, whether we trade with France
1: or we don't. And you still, uh, still talk to the Swires? Hugh, uh, well, Hugo and Sasha um, still on your Christmas card list? Um, well, it's a good question. I haven't got round to my Christmas card. know I'm the Christmas cards uh, in this day
4: and age. Um, look, I, I'm. Look, I was very fond of them both. Um, and, that sounds very past uh, tense they were to not, me, George. They were, hmm? <laughs> that sounds past very past tense. tense. Yeah, uh, no, I, look, they they are very good company as uh, as we've all as we've read in great detail. <laughs> I'm not a massive fan of. Uh, Recording, you know, conversations and publishing them, but, uh, but you know, well, that's, that's the way it goes in politics.
1: Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio Show every Monday to Thursday, ten till one. Uh, You can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Redbox podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.